Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. What if I told you that death may be optional? Is it possible that a fundamental of existence that we will all inevitably die, is that still true? And billionaire technologists are behind the modern pursuit of everlasting life. Where else do you find the promise of living longer or forever? It's just like religion and Silicon Valley. I'm Alex Kratoski. Listen to Intrigue the Immortals wherever you get your podcasts. I would not miss this show for anything. Unexpected Elements is the podcast exploring the science behind the headlines. It's a real melting pot. Yeah, there certainly is a lot happening. Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Discovery from the BBC World Service, and I'm exploring two stories each week of how insects have transformed our world. You should see my desk at the moment. It's covered in flies. There is a species called Drosophila melanogaster. Now, many people call this the fruit fly. Technically, it's the vinegar flies. But this has become a model organism for scientific research. It is so useful that eight Nobel Prizes have been awarded to scientists who've used these flies. Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. These Drosophila have very short lifespans and breed incredibly fast, making them the perfect candidates for manipulating and monitoring in labs across the globe and a little bit further. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series, I'm taking a peek at these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking experiments have led to some truly novel developments. Am not I a fly like thee? Or art not thou a man like me? At first glance, you might not think that the flies buzzing around your fruit bowl have much in common with yourselves. But William Blake, back in the 18th century, could see connections. And he was right. Left to their own devices, the innocuous flies that are Drosophila melanogaster would be content to spend their life doing nothing much more than hovering around a pile of rotten apples, getting drunk and having one night stands. But we know much more about these flies than any other animal on the planet. And 75% of human disease genes have similar genes in this fly. In a lab like mine, we have trays and trays of hundreds of those that we have prepared or are preparing for a particular genetic study. Stephanie Moore is a geneticist at Harvard Medical School and author of First in Fly, a book that charts the insights into human health and disease gained from studying the humble Drosophila. They don't look identical to us, but we can see things, begin to see things emerge that you can look as familiar. The overall body plan, they actually have all of the senses that we have. They smell, they they have a sense of touch, they taste, and so on. 
And they have a lot of organs that are very comparable. Not only do they have a heart, but it actually has a heartbeat. It's a very simple single tube of a thing, a brain that is just astoundingly sophisticated, given what a tiny thing we're looking at. You know, you can study processes in a fly that you might not imagine. This leap of faith in this fly began at the start of the 20th century by another Harvard scholar, Charles Woodworth, using them in his lab, who in turn recommended them to another colleague, who subsequently recommended them to another, till Kentucky-born biologist Thomas Hunt Morgan introduced them to his own lab. But Morgan wasn't an entomologist, he was an embryologist. He wasn't interested in the flies per se, but in development and heredity. And this was a time when biologists were beginning to appreciate for the first time the long-neglected genetic experiments of the 19th century Austrian monk Gregor Mendel. Morgan was a sceptical scientist. He was sceptical of Darwin and he was initially sceptical of Mendel's laws of inheritance. Morgan began breeding the fly in his search for an experimental approach to evolution. He was testing an alternative to the theory of natural selection which he felt was not sufficient to explain the origin of new species. As Drosophilist and historian Matthew Cobb of the University of Manchester explains. Basically, he wanted to create evolution in a test tube, and he was looking for examples of sudden change in a population of organism. And he chose Drosophila because it has a very short life cycle. So he could do this over and over again, breed them, and subjected them to all sorts of things like centrifuge, uh, different temperatures and so on. And he was hoping to find what the early evolutionary theorists thought would be this sudden period of transformation. He didn't know what that would look like, and he didn't have any particular ideas about what might appear, but that was his aim. For two years, he persisted in his dingy fly room at Columbia University. I have been breeding those flies for all that time, and I have got nothing out of it. But it's a very interesting period from a geneticist perspective, where on the one hand, you have microscopy improvements and cytologists who are able to see chromosomes, but they don't yet have the appreciation that we now have that chromosomes are the DNA are carrying the genes. And then on the other hand, you have this recent rediscovery of Mendel's genetic theory and the idea of recessive and dominant traits and patterns of inheritance. And that's all concept. So we've got these, you know, one rooted in physical, one rooted in concept. And Morgan and others in his group were culturing flies in milk bottles that are easy to wash and reuse. <laughs> and, you know, the pictures of those early days show them with, you know, hands of bananas sitting around the lab. So that's what they're using to feed them. It's very different from Drosophila labs of today. Morgan was so close to giving it all up as a bad job when suddenly... Amongst the wild stock of normally red-eyed flies, a white-eyed male was born. We don't know why the mutation occurred, but it appeared and they could work out that it was on the X chromosome because the females have two copies of the X chromosome, whereas the males only have one. And so this white-eyed, when they crossed it with other red-eyed flies, uh, the white-eyed character appeared in all the male offspring, but you had to then recross the females again with a, a white-eyed male to get the white-eyed offspring. And that showed that it was on the X chromosome. So through this result that he published and actually used italics in the publication to say, 
there were no wide-eyed females. I found only wide-eyed males in this, these next generations. So this is breaking one of Mendel's rules. And so he's reporting data in that publication of more than 4,000 flies. So that, that becomes convincing in a way that a study with a larger organism with a smaller brood size is just not going to be as convincing. The once sceptical Morgan was now diverted to analysing the material basis of sex determination and inheritance. And with eyes properly trained on the stocks of flies, Morgan and his team of fellow fly pushers began to notice a host of other variants. They very soon started to notice different shaped bristles on their backs or little notches in their wings. And they did two things. Firstly, they tried to see how these different mutations, as they called them, related to each other. And then they could actually work out where on a chromosome, where physically they might be. So I think it's one of the most extraordinary bits mm. of science. They were able, by by looking at two uh, of these strange characters, seeing how often they were transmitted together and how often they were dissociated, they could come to the conclusion that those characters that tended to be inherited together were closer together physically on the chromosome than those that were far apart. And this and other discoveries in his lab and others build this bridge for which he then wins the Nobel Prize of showing that chromosomes are in fact the physical material by which inheritance occurs. So he could see the chromosomes, they seem to have a relationship to inheritance. We have this concept of inheritance, you know, now they're connected. These studies at the Columbia Fly Room ushered in a new era of research, launching experimental genetics to the world, and in doing so, propelled the humble vinegar fly to one of the most influential models on the planet. The naming of Drosophila genes that has for the most part endured is a kind of backward logic. The gene is named after the mutant version of the gene. Morgan started it with naming the first gene mutation as white, after their white eyes, and possibly to relieve the drudgery of the often repetitive nature of fly pushing, Scientists have dreamt up some truly silly names, from Tin Man, the mutant fly that has no heart, to, well... There's a, a gene called Van Gogh after the painter because the whirls of patterns of hairs on the wings, sort of reminiscence of like a painting like Starry Night. There's a gene that was named Ken and Barbie uh, <laughs> after the dolls. Cause it, it's because they've got no genitalia. <laughs> so you're much more comfortable saying that. And a gene called Cheap Date. <laughs> uh, cheap Date is obviously one of my favorites because we move on to the behavior associated with that one and how alcohol affects behavior in a fly. Yeah. Of course, what's really nice about that is we can t bring that around also to human behavior and human suffering. And uh, yeah. some of the screens that were done identifies, you know, here's a list of genes that we see as having some association with alcohol in flies. When we're then later able to look at human genomes and, and associate genes in humans with particular addictive behaviors, you can make a match up and say, okay, mm. now we have an inroad of exactly what's going wrong. And, you know, in some cases, those inroads with genes in general, with, with human genes, can eventually lead to understanding. And yeah. understanding is often a, a prerequisite to treatment. Small wonder, then, that such sophisticated creatures are now a benchmark species for many research topics, including space travel. In 1947, they became the first animals in space. And ever since, we've been studying the effects of their extraterrestrial exploits. Since 2014, the Fruit Fly Lab on the International Space Station has been the setting for a series of experiments looking at the effects of long-duration space missions on everything from body clock gene expression to body defence systems. 
Shamila Bhattacharya is NASA's program scientist for human space biology. You can send up thousands of flies, you know, in a bread box sized payload mm. and get multi-generational studies done in a relatively short period of time in space. So you can look at how the effects translate, you know, from one generation to the next in terms of, you know, the flies acclimating or adapting mm. in space. So, yeah. So for all of those reasons, flies can answer important questions for us. The first insights into the impact of space on heart function is the latest study provided by Astroflies. These were born in space and exposed to three weeks of microgravity, the human equivalent of three decades. When these aliens arrived down on Earth, scientists sprang into action, working around the clock to ensure Earth's gravity didn't interfere with the results. So for an animal that breeds completely in space... What we found is that the structure of the heart tissue was significantly altered. So you had changes in the muscle fibers and how they oriented, uh, which, as you can imagine, then would affect the functioning and the contractility of the heart. It also affected, you know, overlying tissues, which is an important part of how the organ is tethered, you know, to within the body as well as with the muscles. It's extraordinary you get this effect within just a generation. I mean, this possibly translates into some long-term issues with humans in space. Way down the road, you know, maybe maybe decades from mm-hmm. now, it will be an important question. And that's where understanding these phenomena now at the nascent stages helps us plan ahead to see what we can do in the future for humans. But in between, then you start to look at, okay, what would be the most reasonable countermeasures to test? You know, what would be the most reasonable genes to go after to understand what the genetic susceptibilities are for these changes? So we can then utilize to make sure that humans will be safe in space for long durations of time. We've come a long way since Morgan brought Drosophila from the fruit bowls into the lab. And in doing so, he turned the fly from a living organism into what is effectively a piece of lab equipment. And the fly continues to prove itself as a powerful system for the study of human genetic disease and fallibility. But although simpler in design to us in many ways, these flies undertake one of the most extraordinary changes, one that many of us might wish we could do in transforming their bodies during their lifetime, as we'll hear next. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC, and I'm exploring how insects have transformed our world. I'm in the fly collection at the Natural History Museum in London, and I'm taking out a drawer of hoverflies that shows the different stages of their extraordinary life cycle. So in front of me, I've got hundreds of beautiful adults here, and these are the ones we see fluttering around our gardens. But that's just a small part of their quite complex life stages. So they've actually undergone complete metamorphosis from a larval stage through a pupil to an adult stage, which is arguably the biggest transformation of any animal on the planet. Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. 
So these hoverflies go from legless larvae concerned with just stuffing their faces to these fabulous winged creatures, a transformation that for centuries has remained a mystery. And in the case of many of these insects, a process we're yet to fully understand. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series I'm taking a peek at some of the entomological pioneers whose groundbreaking observations and experiments have led to some truly novel developments. In 1671, the influential and illustrious writer Margaret Cavendish published a somewhat classical confused image of a butterfly arising out of the decay of a dead caterpillar. The silkworm digs her grave as she doth spin and makes her winding sheet to lap her in and from her bowels takes a heap of silk which on her body as a tomb is built. Out of her ashes do her young ones rise, having bequeathed her life to them. She dies. The idea of new insect life emerging from nothing had prevailed for centuries. Like many other early modernists, Jan Swammerdam, a 17th century Dutch biologist and microscopist, was highly critical of all those who blindly followed the views of the ancients. Swamadan trained in medicine and made major discoveries due to his very careful dissections. But as historian and zoologist Matthew Cobb reveals, Swamadan's interests and talents lay in dissecting much smaller creatures than humans. Swamadan the Elder had what's called a cabinet of curiosity. Uh, that is, he would go down to the docks where there were ships coming from all over the world and would buy from these sailors who'd arrived from distant parts whatever extraordinary strange animals or objects uh, that he thought was interesting. And he had these on display inside his pharmacy. So young Jean Schwammerdam grew up there on the east side of Amsterdam and he got interested in particular in entomology because of his desire to see the power of God in even the smallest of things. That led him to also tackle one of the these big questions which is well where does life come from because it appeared that as aristotle had argued that for insects life seemed to emerge from basically decay and grot during the 1660s despite retreats into bouts of mystical theology swamadam made painstaking dissections of insects with help from a new technological development a tiny single-lens microscope. Astonishingly, he was able to show in detail that insects contained complex internal organs and in doing so, he broke with two millennia of Aristotelian tradition. His exquisite dissection skills of the silkworm caterpillar enabled him to understand insect development and transformation in a way no one had before. The matter, he claimed, should be attacked not by thought, but by experimentation. If you took the caterpillar, the silkworm caterpillar, which is about the length of your little finger, it's a pretty hefty thing, just as it was about to pupate, and you dissected it, you opened it up, that you could see within it the actual structures of the future butterfly. You could see, in a, he said they were watery and soft, but you could see the antennae, the head the wings, and even parts of the abdomen. In other words, there was growing inside the caterpillar, even before it had pupated, the early signs of the future adult. And this showed that the suggestion that 
the caterpillar died inside the pupa and, you know, out of the mush generated a new life. This was wrong. The caterpillar and the butterfly are the same organism. The pupa not only contains all the parts of the future animal, but is indeed that animal itself. It is nothing more than a change of the caterpillar or worm, containing the embryo of the winged animal that is to proceed from it. And Schwamadam did this as a kind of party trick. He did it for the, the great and the good in Paris, in Italy. He went round the world showing people how you could prove that these two apparently completely separate organisms were in fact the same one. All the limbs of the butterfly, the fly and other such insects are by no means generated suddenly and all at once, as has been supposed, but grow leisurely, one after another, under the skin that covers them. And the drawings which are in his archive, which is held in the University of Leiden Library, these drawings, the original pen and ink drawings, you can actually see the marks of his pen as he makes the most exquisite observations uh, of insects, of their internal anatomy and of their behaviour. Incredibly to me, considering the age of these discoveries, the revelations weren't just told through the pen of males. Here in the Natural History Museum, we've got images drawn and painted from the German natural science illustrator Maria Sibylla Merian, who documented the life cycles of 186 insect species. Her meticulous watercolours depicting her careful observations of metamorphoses, particularly in their natural habitats, caught the attention of the Royal Academy more than 250 years before the first woman was permitted to join. Librarian Grace Tuzel. From the time she was around 13, she was already raising silkworms herself and observing their life cycles. She uh, relocated to Amsterdam, didn't she, and became obsessed by the stunning array of tropical specimens that the returning travellers brought with them from the Dutch colony of Suriname in South America. And then she boldly took a trip there to paint the local insects and plants. And we've both got this beautiful plate in front of us of an insect life on a sweet potato plant. Yeah, we have a few different species feeding, crawling, breeding, all in one place. So you can see the larvae, the pupae and the adult insect all clustered together, which visually links those stages of the life cycle for the viewer. Elsewhere on the plant, you've got uh, various life cycle stages. And again, Marion has drawn them in the same quarter of the plate so you've got that visual link between them and this is real scientific endeavor it's extraordinary pr for the process of metamorphosis occurring in situ uh, yeah people had illustrated bits and pieces of this but didn't perhaps realize that they were continuous so having that uh, first-hand observation of a life cycle like marion did linked it all together in that it wasn't just stage one, stage two, stage three. It was one, two, three, back to one. And just that continual life cycle. It's lucky the silkworm was the first insect to have been scrutinised during the attempt to unmask metamorphosis. The pieces of the future adult discovered by Schwamadam are present in all insects that have a pupil stage, but only in the butterflies and moths do they look anything like the adult organs. Had Swamadan started off by dissecting a fly maggot, for instance, his story might have been very different. If you don't know what you're looking for, you won't see what are called imaginal discs, because basically they're just kind of little patches of skin, but they are going to turn into the wings, antennae, the mouth parts of the adult fly. But unlike in caterpillars, 
You can't tell that by looking. And Shramadam did try. The change seems indeed wholly incomprehensible. Which, in many ways, I think it still is. We still don't fully understand how metamorphosis takes place in flies. While there's still more to be unmasked, the huge number of insects that undertake complete metamorphosis speaks for its success as a life cycle strategy. It eliminates competition between the young and the old, as in many instances the larvae and the adults occupy very different ecological niches. And today, interrogating the individual spans of each part of the life cycle is also taking on a new significance as an accurate tool to track environmental change across the globe. Chris Hassel is Professor of Biology at the University of Leeds. If you look at the UK government's biodiversity indicators, then uh, butterfly phenology, as we call it, or Mm -hmm. the, the study of life history timing, that's right up there. So... The spring index, as it's called, is based on partly the first flight date each year of the orange tip butterfly. And so that's in uh, UK government's biodiversity indicators already. That indicator, I think, has shifted by a little over a week Mm -hmm. since 1998 compared to the early part of the 20th century as well. So that just highlights the fact that this is a, a sensitive measure that's really quite well understood and that is driving environmental policy at a UK government level. Insect population numbers, a change in species distribution, even a change in insect size are all familiar indicators of a changing environment. But, says Chris, choosing a charismatic model species whose life cycle is highly sensitive to temperature could be a biological proxy to tease out subtle changes in our climate. There's a species of my particular favourite group of insects, the dragonflies, which up in the UK, where it it reaches its northern limit, it might take two years to go through one generation. Whereas if you look down in the Mediterranean basin, it'll go through three or possibly even four generations per year. And so, yeah, that's that's right. It's amazing. amazing. If you go down to southern France and, and Spain, you'll see it for nine, ten months of the year. And every couple of months, it's a completely new generation that's come through. I had no idea that you could have something that can have just one life cycle in two years in the UK and then two or three in just one year in the south of France. Is this going to be a useful barometer species? It could well be. There's plenty of great dragonfly recorders out there who could be harnessed as what we've started to refer to as citizen science armies Mm. of recorders to get out there and produce the sort of high quality data that we need. As the data continues to improve, you see insects being used widely. Oh, definitely. Yes. And the wonderful thing about insects is that they are abundant and I would say vastly more important than many of the other taxa that biologists have focused on in conservation. Not only are they important, but they're diverse. And so they can tell Mm. us lots of different things about how the environment is changing. And that makes them an ideal Swiss army knife, really, for understanding global change patterns. And we can not only track how much insect stuff there is, which is really important for ecosystems, but we can see where it's going, we can see when it happens, and then we can start to ask, why is it happening? Why does it vary? And how can we fix any problems that might occur? Insects are great. Studying the life cycle of insects not only enables us to study changes in the global environment, but as we hear in the next episode, looking at the development of certain insects also gives us clues into our own specific environment, especially if some nefarious deed has been done. 
Thanks for listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Erica McAllister and the producer was Adrian Washbourne. Catch you next time. Unexpected Elements is all about finding the surprising science angles to everyday news. I love that this show has the scope to discuss both emergent AI, nuclear in Ghana, and also what those stringy bits are on a banana. And joining the dots between their global connections. Nature does pack a lot of surprises for us. An invisibility cloak in the acoustic domain. So cool. That's Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. What if I told you that death may be optional? Is it possible that a, a fundamental of existence that we will all inevitably die, is that still true? And billionaire technologists are behind the modern pursuit of everlasting life. Where else do you find the promise of living longer or forever? It's just like religion and Silicon Valley. I'm Alex Kratoski. Listen to Intrigue the Immortals wherever you get your podcasts. I would not miss this show for anything.